Welcome to the Tier One Podcast, bringing you interviews with the brightest minds in the shooting industry. Get unique insights to help you shoot better, survive longer, and outperform your competition. Brought to you by Tier One, the world's best shooting accessories. Hey guys, welcome. Thank you for joining us on episode six, I think we're on now, um, of the Tier One Podcast. First off, just want to say thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for listening. Um, we really appreciate you tuning in each month to 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 hear this and listen to this. And uh, you know, it's why we keep doing it. Um, uh, well, we'd love to hear from you as well. If there's somebody you'd like to get on the podcast and and you'd like to hear them interviewed, please email us. Uh, you can email me direct at harry at tier one usacom and recommend somebody, and I'll reach out to them. If it's a friend of yours, of course you can uh, you can let them know, and uh, they can get in touch with us or whatever. We'd be very happy to to interview them. Um, today we've got Nick or Nicholas Gebhardt uh, from Zero Compromise Optic. Zero Comp. If you haven't heard of them already, YouTube them or, or Google them now. There's a lot of um, good videos and and reviews out there talking about them. They're a relatively new kid on the block into in you know in the scope world. Um, and uh, what they've achieved is very impressive. You know, it's obviously a crowded space. There's a lot of players in it, a lot of very highly regarded names as well. And Zero Compromise have come along and, and already carved a niche for themselves as a premium scope manufacturer. Um, so uh, definitely worth having a look at what they do. Nick is going to talk to us today about what makes their scopes special. What is their mission statement? Um, obviously, the clue is in the company name zero compromise uh, these are very high-end scopes and Nick is going to dive into a little bit of detail uh, on that besides that Nick is also a um, competitive shooter so he competes in a lot of PRS and NRL matches and he talks to us a little bit about that as well um, and about his setup and specifically about the rifle stock that he runs which is a custom stock that he made himself um, and uh, it's a very impressive piece of workmanship and um, you can check out the photos on Sniper's Hide, I believe there's a post on there and I think also on the Zero Comp website uh, there's, they've got a blog on there and I think I saw it on there if you want to check that out it's zcomoptic.com so it's all one word, letter Z com, oh sorry zcompoptic.com zcompoptic.com and they've got a blog on there um, you'll also see a tier one monomount featured proudly on the homepage, which is very cool. Um, I think that's enough for me. I'll get out of the way now and let you enjoy this next conversation with Nick Gebhardt from Zero Compromise Optic. So um, it kind of got started with uh, a few of us. And so I do more of the marketing, social media type of stuff, help out with various aspects, um, not really from a technical side of things, but more of a end user competition oriented uh, perspective. Okay. And so um, a few of us um, got together um, with really, really strong backgrounds in the high end rifle scope market specifically. Right. So not just uh, somebody that has worked for a company, you know, somewhere, but very high-end companies. Yes. Um, Mr. Jeff Huber is 
probably the one of the most instrumental um, members of the of the team. He's one of the co-owners, and so he was actually the vice president of Night Force for 22 years. Right. Okay. Yeah. So he ran the um, research and development side of Night Force for a long, long time. He was really, really critical and instrumental in even making that a company uh, right. from very, very start. And so anyway, um, yeah, he left Night Force. Uh, this is several, several years ago. And I linked up with him, uh, must have been 2000, late 2013 or 2014-ish, right. um, where he was at that time running the importation and distribution of Collis okay. here in the United States. And so if you go back to that time frame uh, is really when the Collis name started gaining more and more popularity in the Precision Rifle Series competitions yeah. throughout the United States and, and the world and stuff. Yeah. So, um, he was there, kind of helped out uh, the Collis, getting them, uh, you know, brand recognition throughout the United States, as well as helping design some of their popular reticles that they're using now. Um, and that's kind of when I linked up with him, was around that kind of time frame. And so I was a competition shooter. Right. And we, he needed a little bit extra help making phone calls, reaching out to new dealers. And so those are some of my roles is building the dealer network. And going how, around. How did you How did you meet? Does he shoot competitions as well? No. So Mr. Huber's background, um, he does do a lot of hunting, but he did a lot of bench rest yeah. uh, competitions. Um, okay. And that's kind of when the the Night Force brand really started kind of taking off was being used in bench rest, and then it made its way, you know, around the different sectors of the market. But. Um, no, how I actually linked up with him is in my own free time as I was doing um, optic reviews that were being posted on a website called longrangehunting.com. Okay, yeah. And, um, so I was actually just putting on the final touches for a review of the Night Force Beast. Right. And I had heard about Collis, um, met some guys, you know, that were showing the Collis scopes around. And I just happened to reach out to, you know, the, the general email or whatever and said, you know, hey, this is me. And this is some of the stuff that I've been doing. Haven't really been seeing a whole lot about the Collis name out there. Is there anything that I could do to help you guys out? Right. And Mr. Mr. Huber got a hold of me and he asked me if uh, I wouldn't mind doing a review on their binoculars, the Collis binoculars. So, yeah, sure. No problem, you know. And, uh. So he sent me some binoculars and put a review together, and that got posted up on longrangehunting.com as well. And, you know, I was sending the binoculars back to him, talking to him on the phone, and he just happened to mention that he was super busy and, you know, things were really taking off really well with, with the Collis and everything. And yeah. I asked if there's anything that I could do to help him out, you know. And so a couple months later, I was working for him, and, doing what I could to help out um, that other company. So we did an excellent job with, with them, got that um, got that name up and running really, really strong throughout the United States. And uh, so a couple of years with that, and Swarovski is actually the parent company of Collis. Right. And, um, so they uh, 
they determined that uh, they didn't really need our services anymore. They're, you know, the parent company and things are going really well. And uh, so they decided to just go ahead and take over as the importer and, and distributor for Collis, you know, throughout the United States. And so that freed us up. And um, so we reached out to some of our industry contacts and Mr. Huber put together a heck of a team with mechanical engineer, uh, got some optical design guys on board to, to work with us. And the entire goal for this new company that we're going to start uh, was to build the finest rifle scopes um, possible. And so from my perspective, I get to put in a lot of input for what I wanted from a competition side of things. And Mr. Huber's background with R&D from previous jobs and marketing, um, you know, with different companies, we uh, really set, put together a, a feature set of the ultimate rifle scope that we really wanted to build. So we knew that it had to be absolutely durable. Um, I hate to say bomb proof, but that's <laughs> almost a, you know, an applicable term here. Yeah. And we needed to have, you know, the outstanding optical performance. So we wanted to compete not just in the, you know, hey, we have a rifle scope too, you should buy our stuff, but we wanted yeah. to be in that very top tier level of rifle scopes. Um, performance all the way around, whether it's optical, mechanical, durability, we wanted the, the very, very best. So we did a lot of a lot of research, you know, on our own for what did the shooters really want in that level of a scope. Uh, what were some of the features that were lacking in other companies? Uh, what were good features that other companies did have that we wanted to kind of integrate as well, or make sure that we had something that was competitive? And um, it it took us quite some time, uh, a couple of years or more, to kind of get everything going. And um, just happened to be that. Um, we have a very, very good uh, machine shop, uh, which is uh, part of the Zero Compromise Optic Company. Right. So and you own all, that. Yeah, we make all of our own parts and everything, um, except for the lenses. The lenses we do get from Shot. Yeah. It is. Uh, I can't say they're very best quality because those, those are very, very expensive. But it is of the very top tier level of their lenses yeah. that they do manufacture. And, um, yeah, uh, take a look at all the independent reviews that are out there, and everybody places us right up there with the best in the world, if not the best in the world, for every regard that you want to look at a rifle scope. Yeah, I mean, that's not an, not an easy thing to do either. There are a lot of very big and very established players in that niche. Um, mm -hmm. And I guess from what from your description just there, it sounds like you had a couple of aces up your sleeve. I mean, I love the mission statement to make the best possible rifle scope. Um, it's worth asking the question, how have you done that? What did you take into account when you guys were, because you said you were you were picking bits and pieces from previous companies, things that were missing from some companies, things that other companies did very well and conglomerating them. What What is the the magic mix that you guys have put together? So it, yeah, you're exactly right. It is kind of a, a mix of things. We don't have any one specific thing that says, well, that is what makes us the best, but it's yeah. everything coming together. So like our optical design, um, we again, we're using the shot 
lenses. Uh, we actually use a, another company for a couple other lenses in, internally, but um, the front objective is an ED lens, and that just helps with overall image quality, uh, right. color fidelity. Um, you know, that's really the, the lead into the scope with, with the light coming in. Yes. So we're trying to make sure that just optical formula all the way through is really, really good. Uh, we looked at field of view numbers. We wanted to have very, very good um, field of view. Yeah. We wanted our scope not to be like, not necessarily the, the shortest in the industry, but we didn't want to be very long scope. And it's easier to make a higher quality optically uh, with a longer scope. Right. Um, but we understand that it's a little bit more advantageous to have a bit shorter design. So yeah. we kind of put all these these different things together. We kind of want to be on the shorter side of things with a 5 to 27 rifle scope. Um, we needed to have locking turrets because that is one of the things that uh, competitors really yeah. enjoy. Yeah. Uh, so when they're pushed up against the barricade or they're transitioning from one place to another, they don't yeah. accidentally rotate their turrets. For sure. And so we, we needed locking turrets. Um, with our design, we also wanted to make sure that we had uh, a lot of elevation travel in one turn, but we didn't want our clicks to be so closely packed in there together that it was difficult to determine which click you were on or it took you extra time yeah. to look and verify. So we're going to need to make sure that our clicks were spaced out a little bit more than some of the competitors are. Yep. Um, the engraving on our scopes uh, wanted to be maximized. Where previous um, previous companies that we worked with, that was one of the complaints that we did get, especially from the older population of shooters, right. is as their eyes are getting older, they're having a hard time seeing their click right. values. I and did wonder that because I noticed there's a lot of laser etching on the scope. It's, mm -hmm. it's very it's it's clear. You can see every number very clearly. For some people, maybe too bold. Uh, I mean, on on our uh, rings, for example. We used to do, I believe we used to do a white logo, and then uh, so many people asked for the, the stealth version, if you like, you know, <laughs> the black, yep. that that became the standard. Have you found the same? I guess not. It sounds like you, you almost had the other problem where people wanted it brighter. Uh, not exactly brighter, but maybe a little bit bigger, um, a little bit bolder, maybe. Yeah, um, yeah when you dial it, your turrets, whether it's your elevation or your windage, you're not having to squint to yeah. look, see, and verify um, what, what your click is. Uh, so there's that. And then um, with the elevation travel, we also wanted to play in the ELR world with our products. Okay. And so a high elevation adjustment range um, was desired. Yeah. So we've got uh, on our products 35 mils of elevation adjustment yeah. and a total of 20 mils of adjustment on the windage. Right. So that's on the higher side of things from sure. any manufacturer out there. And so when you kind of combine a high elevation adjustment range with superior optical performance, and that is really kind of what led us to using a larger main tube diameter at the 36 millimeter tube so i was going to come to this question i'm glad you've answered that so that's to incorporate enough movement in the erector tube is that right correct yes okay. 
as well as having optical performance that was what we needed for our products. Right. Yep. Um, do enough searching around, and generally what you'll see is other manufacturers will be regarded as having awesome optical capability, but if you look at their adjustment travel, it's not quite as much as we have. It's, right. Or you might have other companies that have high elevation and windage adjustment travel, but they're not exactly regarded as having superior optics. So that yeah. was the things that we really wanted to have was a combination of both of that. And, and really, that's really kind of what led to that name, Zero Compromise, yeah. is not compromising our optics so that we have a high adjustment range, and we're yeah. not compromising our mechanical system so that we have superior optical performance. So we could get, uh, I'm sure we could get really technical here and feel, feel free to, but this is a question that's on my mind if you if you are not compromising on either of those things how are you maximizing both at the same time what is is there something unique in the construction of your scope that allows you to do that um, right so generally um if we start to look back historically with rifle scopes uh, you had one inch tube Rifle scopes seem to kind of be where things were at a long time ago, and then things graduated up to a 30 millimeter main tube. Mm -hmm. And for the last almost 10 years, uh, it's been a 34 millimeter main tube, yeah. right? Well, for the most part, and I can't speak to every manufacturer, of course, yeah. um, but for the most part, they kept the same erector design, and they just went to larger tubes so that they get better elevation adjustment range. Right. Well, so we have actually modified that. So where we are using larger internal lens elements in some of those key positions to help out with that optical performance all the way through the scope, while we're still getting a high adjustment range. Right. So we didn't we didn't we didn't just maintain the same erector design that you might find in a 34 millimeter tube. Yeah. Put it into a 36, and now we got you know good mechanics. Yeah, now you can we go did, higher. Yeah, we did um, maximize our internal lens elements to help out with optical performance as well. Interesting. Okay, so it was, I mean, you had, in some ways, you had an advantage because you were starting from scratch. You could, you could exactly. design everything. Yeah. Yep. Okay. Very cool. Very interesting. So some of the other feature sets that we looked at, um, we're a locking diopter, so once you adjust your reticle focus for your eye, you can lock it down and it won't move. Right. So that was another one of those requests from the competitor world. Okay. So when you have your, your flip-up caps, if you need yeah. to get that out of your way and you, you bump it on something or you move it, it's not going to adjust your diopter setting. Yeah. So we wanted to have that. And the other request uh, or thing that I noticed was people wanted to have either a throw lever of some sort or a way to attach one yeah. that didn't look like some other thing just kind of strapped onto your yeah. magnification ring. And so we designed an integrated uh, magnification change lever into that part of the scope. And here's where Mr. Huber's technical expertise really comes into play is when we're putting these scopes together, they're hand fitting all of this stuff 
and we've gone to great lengths to make sure that the amount of tension on our controls is just ideal from a user right. perspective. So with our magnification change lever, you don't really even need it, but you can kind of just hook your finger on that mm -hmm. and you can adjust it quick and easy. You don't need anything larger if you don't need it. That's going to end up being in your way eventually. So that uh, is the, the kind of shark fin looking piece. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Which is, so that's an integral throw lever, basically. That's, that's the job it's doing. That's right. Exactly. Okay. Yep. So it's just big enough to get a finger on, but it's not sticking up an extra two inches yeah. or whatever. But how that really helps is because the amount of tension on that magnification right. ring. It's not too tough, but it's also not going to move when you don't want it to. Yeah, sure. That seems to have been built in all around, and, and that's obviously the competition DNA coming through where, like you say, you're moving between barricades you know, you've got enough to think about already. It's so easy to bump something. Um, right. And then you've got a time limit and now you're sweating and <laughs> everyone's watching you, you know, and you, you're going to try and redial. Yep. Um, right. Yeah, it's one less thing to think about. Yep. So, yeah, and those are all, you know, some of those just little features that might go unnoticed until you start to actually use the scope. Yeah. So who is the main target market pun you know intended who's the who's the target market for the scope is it competition shooters or is it hunters or are you is it military are you guys looking at military stuff as well uh so we haven't tried to specifically target the military but there are several military people using our products already yes um, it, obviously they've kind of heard about our reputation and the quality and people are checking them out Yes. Um, so that, that's always positive to get those reports back. Yes. But our, our really our, our target market is anybody that wants to have a totally reliable product that's going to give them outstanding optical performance, mechanical performance and durability, a scope that they can count on for the rest of their life. Brilliant. Whether that's a competition shooter, uh, somebody shooting a stream long, long range, or just a, a hunter that wants to have a very high-end rifle, very high-end optic. Yeah. And a rifle they're going to be able to pack up in the mountains or around the hills or whatever they're hunting. And they can count on their equipment to perform. How do you go about building in toughness into something which is which contains so many delicate pieces? You know, uh, it, it blows my mind that something with such finely milled glass um, and you know delicate internals can be bashed about but they can um, could you explain how that works and how you've achieved that uh, so there's so many different aspects uh, for for doing that right, right. Um, so if we just look at um, we'll, we'll start kind of from the outside and work our way in a little bit yeah is the the main body of the scope is it's a one-piece deal it actually starts from a solid chunk of billet okay and then everything gets uh, machined down and during that machining process it gets stress relieved a couple different times so you remove a, a big chunk of material and it goes through a stress relieving process start doing some more machining get, get rid of even more stuff and another stress relieving and then down to final dimensions right okay uh, so that that kind of helps um, in a couple different ways. 
and number one is just with the thermal stability of the scope. Um, and what I mean by thermal stability is if you're ever out shooting, uh, start out maybe in the morning and the sun is shining on your equipment from one yeah. side or the other, and you get your zero. What can happen is as that sun moves across the sky and, or you change positions, if the sun is warming one side or the other of the scope, that can actually cause a point of aim deviation with your reticle right. due to the material um, warming or cooling. And so the, the solid billet that we start with and then the stress relieving really eliminates a lot of that memory that's going to start to come out through the, the heating, even, you know, just from the sun. Yeah. So we've tested that um, multiple different times and making sure that we're holding the quality that we need for our product. Um, moving inward from there is the way that we actually have our lenses ground and then mounted into their positions within right. the scope. So you, these lenses are made in Austria, right? Uh, uh, over there in Europe someplace. I'm not sure the, the exact location of where, okay. which shot facility they come yeah, from. Sure. Yeah, no. But then they're assembled in the States or is it assembled in? Correct. Right. Okay, no, yeah. assembled here in the United States. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so we bring everything, all the parts and pieces, the individual machined parts. Yep. And there's you know, almost 200 different pieces into every single rifle scope. But right. we bring all those over to the United States, and Mr. Huber and his team go through, and they they assemble the scopes really from start to finish, one scope at a time. Wow. Um, but the, the lenses actually have a slight bevel um, around the perimeter okay. of it. And so when that optical element gets put into its uh, mechanical position, there's another corresponding bevel into that that seat where that lens goes. And so it's very similar to when you're stacking bowls, like in your cupboard. Yeah. One bowl inside of another, it kind of just naturally aligns itself, more or less. Okay. And so that's, that's kind of the concept, and we call that our center lock system. Right. And what it does is it helps eliminate as much stress as possible that it might be on that lens when you start to tighten everything down and, and lock it into place. Right. So it wants to be in, in its location, just nice and happy before we start making sure that it stays there. Yeah. So once yeah. it's in position, we also use a bonding agent around that lens element it's kind of like as a bedding compound, if you want to look at it that way, yep. or a, or a yep. glue. Mm -hmm. And so it, it's essentially glued into place, more yep. or less, right? And so how that helps is when your rifle takes a fall, if inside of your internal lens elements have a slight little shift one way or another, that's going to yep. lead to point of impact shift when you go to shoot your next shot. So we eliminate as much of that as we absolutely can uh, by one developing the center lock system and then bonding these lenses into their positions inside of the scope yeah it never occurred to me that the sun moving you know from right to left would shift the point of impact um, by yep. warming up the scope um, yep. but yeah it makes total sense um, yeah 
And so this is one of those things um, Mr. Huber has been testing, you know, for a long, long time. And one of the ways that he's been able to test this is by putting our scopes or any scope in his collimator machine. And you can see the slightest deviation of a reticle in there. Right. So when we're testing our mechanical systems, uh, everything gets put in the collimator and we're adjusting the elevation and the windage travel. And we're looking at the amount of movement for every single click through the entire adjustment range, right. making sure that the erector moves exactly what it's supposed to move. But we can put it in that machine also and literally just take like a Bic lighter and hold mm. it on the front objective yeah. and it'll start to heat that point right there where that kind of lens is, right? Yeah. And we'll start to see a reticle deviation almost immediately on some scopes that are out there. And so that's how we will test ours is basically go through the same process and making sure that we're not getting hardly any reticle deviation at all. Right. And so that's, you know, from a direct flame on the, on the scope is yeah. you know, when your scope is out in the sun, it's not going to be nearly as bad. No, sure. But it, there are some places where it gets really hot, you know? Oh yeah. Yeah. You know, someone's operating in the desert. It's, it might be, uh yeah it might be getting extremely high i mean even in arizona i know the the temperature sure. there gets insane yeah <clears throat> yep. what about uh very cold temperature do you does, does the same thing occur or is, is there a different phenomenon going on no i imagine the same thing will end up occurring just because it's the either yeah. expansion or contraction of the material from the yeah. heat of the cold pretty much every single component through our scopes is either going to be a high-grade alloy Yes. Or a hardened steel. Right. Um, there is a, a couple components that are a bronze alloy. And the only reason that we're using a bronze alloy is because we need the specific lubricity properties from that metal in its right. exact position. Right. But you're not so going to find... something that rotates uh, around it or, or it is a... Yeah, yeah, yep. Okay. Um, but we're not using any brass or what are actually fairly soft metals. Right. Um, even the on the turrets where we have our two set screws to hold your your turret in position. Yeah. Those bear against a hardened steel component inside of there. So right. what that does for you is when you either need to loosen and re-zero and then tighten those screws back down. You're not going to carve tiny little rings from those set screws bearing against a softer material okay. in there. Okay. Which would eventually cause the, the, the scope to effectively wear out, I guess. Right. Exactly. Yep. So it really comes down to the detail. This is what makes the difference between a good scope or even a great scope and like a scope where there is no compromise. It's in the details. Right. Yeah, exactly. Every single little detail. Even Even looking at our click mechanisms... Um, many, almost every other manufacturer that I know of uses a single point, um, for their click mechanisms. Right. Uh, so either it's a, a ballpoint pen type of a thing where it has a little yeah. ball that goes from click to click to click in these tiny little splines around. Yep. yep. Well, we actually developed a dual click mechanism to where our clicks are exactly 180 degrees opposed from each other. So we oh. go to extra lengths to make sure that um, 
our clicks are going to be 100% precise. And th those need to be exactly opposite of each other to align correctly right. from one click to the next. But also, instead of a ball point uh, where it has a little ball rolling across, yeah. you know, grooves and, and peaks and stuff. Yeah. We use a lengthwise pin that oh, is allowed okay. to rotate from one click over a ridge into the next valley into oh. each other. And what the the reason that we developed that is over time, if you're constantly using your elevation or your windage and you're dialing your scope a lot, yeah, you will start to wear out where that ball would rotate over the top of those grooves of or the, the peaks. It's going to start to carve a little groove over those peaks, okay. and that's going to lead to a degradation in your click feel over time. Yeah, it's going to feel really, really scope, not very positive. Right. Our scope is not going to do that because it has a pin that spans that entire length of that peak from okay. click to click, and it's allowed to kind of rotate over the peak into the next click, yeah. and then over the peak into the next click, or whatever the case may be. Uh, so we don't carve that little groove over the tops and, and wear those down over time. So longevity of your scope, the click feel over the lifetime of the scope is going to be a lot more consistent than you would experience with other manufacturers. So you could almost make the case, and I don't mean to put words in your mouth here, but you can almost make the case that, yes, it's a 30, I think it's $3,600 scope at the moment. Is that right? Roughly? In the United States, uh, 3600 U.S. Yeah. Yep. Which is top end. But if you're doing, from what you're saying, the scope is going to last potentially a lifetime. It will certainly outlast some of its users. Um, yes. So there's that, you're actually getting value, is the idea, despite it, it, it seems like a big price up front, but it's good value when you amortize it across that whole lifetime of the product. Right. Right. Okay. Yep. And, and so that was, you know, what we wanted to accomplishes you know superior performance all the way around and so we, we didn't just go with what we already knew or whatever but we looked at every single component and how could we make it better yeah how can we make this you know more robust more durable uh, better quality so a bit of a tricky question for you here uh, but is there anything left on the scope to improve? I mean, is there anything you guys have looked at and gone, ah, do you know what? In the next update, let's fix that or let's improve this. Or, you know, maybe some of your military users are saying we really need X, Y, Z. Is there anything like that? Not at, <clears throat> no, not at the moment. The only, the only real request that we've had is for tool lists, uh, turret design to where you can zero or right. re-zero your scope without a tool of some sort right but at okay. the same time the set screw method that we have now is very robust it works it's easy yeah most people have an allen key uh, with them anyway for other components of their rifles or whatever it's uh i don't know it, we, we felt that it was instead of trying to go to the extra cost and engineering to develop a toolless type design yeah. to stick with what we know works customers are familiar with it's yeah. easy um and so yeah so we uh we obviously make scope mounts that's the that's the core of our business if you like how important yep. is a high quality mount when you're talking about a 
um, a scope of this price bracket and performance level. Uh, how important is it? Absolutely. How how important and what are you looking for in that mount? I, I think it's probably the most important thing because uh, that's what's going to hold on, hold your scope onto your rifle. For sure. I don't want to. I don't want to spend, you know, three or four thousand dollars on a rifle and three or four thousand dollars on a scope, and then you know, use a fifty dollars set of rings. That's hundred percent. Oh, if I, I'm glad you said it. If I said it, people think I'm just selling the product. <laughs> so yeah, it's good to no. Come from a third party. <laughs> yeah, no, um, no, I don't. I don't skimp out on my rings uh, or mounts at all I, I look for the very best quality stuff that uh-huh. that i like and believe in and um, the precision that those are made with really just kind of enhances the performance of your entire system from the rifle into the optic and everything coming together yeah do you guys have any plans for another for another model i know you've got the two at the moment you've got the four and 420 and the 527 do you have plans for another model yeah, yeah, we're working on new stuff. We're pretty much always lo- working on something new. Um, but any any releases uh, will be you know appropriately timed. I- I'm not going to give any specifics on what it may be or anything. Sure. But we sure. are we are looking on at new products. Yes. Very cool. Very exciting. Yep. So there was another thing that caught my eye when I was doing some research on. Uh, in fact, it might even have been Chaz who said it, but I, I might have said it somewhere else. You once built your own rifle stock from scratch. This is completely off the topic of zero comps. I hope you don't mind discussing this. Um, yeah, sure. But you you wrote a, um, a forum post about building your own stock. Could you tell me and the listeners a bit about that? Because I, I glanced at it and it, it looked very cool. Yeah, um, so it started last summer. Uh, I was hanging out with uh, some buddies of mine. Uh, we get together every year for about a week, and we just you know have a lot of beer, and we shoot guns, and we Fantastic. do what the heck ever we feel like. You know, have a big bonfire, yeah. float down the river, do guy stuff, you know, just it's our time away from everything else. Awesome. Um, so I, I was kind of just uh, kicking around an idea in my head, sitting on the couch or watching some movies and you know having some beers and whatever and what was going through my head was um the game of chess yes i I like playing chess i wouldn't say i'm awesome at it but i enjoy it you know there's some strategy involved and anyway so the chessboard idea was in my head and i was wondering how i could make a stock where along the side of the stock was really this chessboard pattern yeah and which is the alternating color of wood or shade of wood right the right yeah yep you have your your darks and your and your light colors and so really what was kind of going through my head was how could i build a rifle stock that is really this chessboard pattern and i was thinking walnut and oak and then I'm thinking about the stresses on the wood from firing the gun because it it'll end up being across the grain instead of parallel with the grain. Right. And how would that kind of hold up? And I'm just kicking around ideas in my head. And one of my buddies kind of asked me, you know, what I was thinking about, and so I was telling him, and 
so we started talking about things then you know we hashed out a couple anyway long story short what i ended up doing was changing instead of from walnut and oak wood as i used uh, cherry and maple okay um for the light colors and the dark color of the wood and i chopped up a whole bunch of tiny little blocks kind of like jenga you ever play the game yeah, jenga i, right? I have uh, yep Okay, so a whole bunch of the pieces that are about that same size, and there were seven eighths of an inch uh, square on the ends, and about two and a half inches long, and I glued those together in alternating uh, cherry and maple and cherry and maple in a herringbone right. type pattern. Yeah. And so what that would end up doing is kind of give where I started shaping the stock at those curves would yep. give it a little bit more visual appeal. To the wood right um while still having that chessboard type layout down the side um and then a little bit later on decided to add some walnut accents which is even darker wood than the cherry or the maple and so i have that as a four end tip a grip cap right. and then kind of like as a spacer at the butt stock yeah but i had to take all these tiny little pieces and glue together a layer um, it was, you know, a couple feet long for the main section of the form of the stock down in the butt stock. Yeah. And all these pieces together, you know, a layer at a time, make sure that everything stayed, um, you know, as much contact as possible along all these pieces and then glue up another layer and then glue these two other layers together, a whole bunch of clamping and gluing and yeah, it, it was, oh man, by the looks of it. Yeah, it was it was a, a ton of work, um, but the end result is just beautiful and it's yeah. fantastic. Um, it does definitely look pretty spectacular. Yeah, yeah, and so I, I did all this essentially myself. Um, I was actually up at Chaz's place. I used his mill right. to help carve out the um, where the the buttstock uh, adjustable cheek piece hardware goes. Yeah. Is that something that I really didn't want to mess up with, you know, just a hand drill and some chisels and stuff? <laughs> yeah, yeah. We did um, a little bit of the uh, barrel channel to make sure that it was straight down the, the forend. Um, but for the most part, I did essentially everything. I did all of the action inletting. The majority of the barrel channel work was all with chisels and hammers and I used to Dremel a lot um, yeah. for some of those those parts. Yeah, I did all the the stock shaping. Uh, I got the bulk of the wood off um, with a bandsaw, uh, a little bit of a table saw time. Right. Um, but the rest of it, the rest of the shaping was done with a four inch angle grinder. You know, I right. had it onto my the railing on my deck here at my house. Yeah. And and then some more Dremel time, especially around the the grip. Um, and so I, I built the stock for the shape that I wanted it. So I wanted a wider beaver tail type forend, similar to a Macmillan A5. Okay. That I have. Um, I wanted the slope from the forend tip down towards the action to be more about like a Macmillan A3 type size. Right. Um, and, and so I love the Macmillan A3. I got a, a bunch of those. I love that stock for an all around you know, field competition, hunting, whatever type stuff. 
Yeah. But the angle on the grip, I wanted to be a little bit more vertical than McMillan offers. Right. So I straightened up a little bit. Um, on the for your firing hand, I'm a right-handed shooter. I also wanted a slight little bit of a palm shelf around there. So when I put my hand on there, my hand goes to the exact same position every time. Yeah. Because uh, my bottom part of my hand can kind of just rest on that little shelf. It's like a little index point for me. Okay. And so with the size and the shape and everything of the grip, I was able to place it to where my trigger finger is in perfect position for me on this gun. Right. right. So I'm not adding other stuff. I'm not trying to build it up with tape or other compound, but it's the stock is purpose-built for my hand, size and shape, and exactly where I wanted it to be. Yeah. And, and how does it shoot? Oh, this thing just shoots awesome. Um, yeah. Yeah, I hadn't even had the stock finished yet, uh, but I did have it bedded in. I had the bottom metal and everything, all that was done, but I hadn't applied any of the finish. I didn't have the cheek piece done. I took it to my gunsmith guy. Uh, he's about three hours away from me, Nemesis Machine out of Butte, Montana. Right. But uh, got down to his place, and he got me a, a proof research barrel spun up in a 6.5 by 47 and nice. um, got stuff uh, black Cerakoted. You know, the barreled action, everything all put together. I came home. I threw my ZC4 to 20 on there. I didn't yeah. even have a. Uh, I didn't even have my cheek piece. I was just kind of floating my face behind the scope, and I did a, a quick little accuracy yeah. check. And the very first group out of that rifle, no cheek piece at all, was under a quarter inch. Wow. And so I was just like, oh yeah, that's great, you know. And so it just <laughs> me more. Um, so I got the cheek piece all finished up, you know, shaped and yeah. spent a lot of time doing the final sanding down to 220 grit sandpaper. And I used a uh, boiled linseed oil yep. for the finish. Yeah. We use uh, that on cricket bats here in the UK. Yeah. Right. Okay. Yep. And, uh, so yeah, about six coats of that on the stock and, and put everything back together and went out and shot it. And it's still under a quarter inch, uh, groups. Uh, nice really consistent i already took it to a competition earlier this year right uh, no issues whatsoever uh, rifle just shoots amazing does it get a lot of attention when you when you take it to the comps <laughs> it, it, it does actually it, <laughs> it slows me down i'm going from one stage to the next and somebody comes by hey man let, let me look at your stock you know yeah. <laughs> where'd you get that <laughs> yeah but it, it works out really well because that's a lead into talking about our scopes and yeah that was one of the things that I also wanted to accomplish with it is a little bit of an eye catcher. Um, yeah. Be able to come over and take a look at the, not just the, the stock, but talk about all of my equipment, you know, that I have. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. so you've got three reticles at the moment, is that right? We do, yeah. So we, we call those our impact one, two, and then the three is the new one for this year. Uh, so impact being M-P-C-T. Uh, stands oh, for yeah. Mill Precision Competition and Tactical. So that really encompasses kind of all the aspects that our reticles are designed for, not just a hunting, but whether you're wanting to shoot precision rifle or you have tactical type applications. Yes. Um, and is that your own design or is that from a third party? These are. Party? No, these are, these are all ours. In fact, the Impact 1 and the Impact 2 um, kind of started with me looking at different reticles that are out there we wanted a, a straight crosshair 
for the guys that like that type, but we also needed to have a tree type reticle yeah. that competitors um, tend to prefer. And so I literally looked at a lot of other manufacturers' reticles. What did they offer? What did I think could be improved upon? And then I tried to combine the best parts of these different reticles into one. Right. Actually, two, two different reticles. Uh, so that started with our, you know, our Impact 1 and Impact 2. And then over this last year that our scopes have been shipping out, I started seeing more people were asking for a dot type reticle uh, from okay. us. And so further conversations with Mr. Huber and the administration, rest of the staff at ZCO, and we decided that we should offer a dot type reticle. Okay. So I got to do a little bit more research about what was already out there and what did I think could be improved upon. And so thus was born the Impact 3. Right. So, so it the, makes that's the, the latest. It is, yeah. Yeah. What makes the, the 3 so distinctive and a lot of people key in on it immediately is the, the circles that are in there, the open, hollow kind of circles that are at the whole mill values. Okay, uh, I'm going to bring up a picture of it while you're talking so I can follow along. These are on your yep. website as well, aren't they? Under the uh, Yes, they um, should be. Yeah. Excellent. So if anybody is listening and want to check these out, they're on the product under the product page, uh, reticle MPCT one, two, and three. Yep. Easy. Okay, I've got it. Go for it. Okay. So the the impact three uh, has the open circles at the whole mill values, mm -hmm. and so that is throughout the entire reticle, whether you're looking at the primary horizontal or the vertical, but okay. as well as down into the tree section. And from there, the rest of the tree type layout is um, solid dots right. that are at the 0.2 mil spacing from right. one dot to the next. Right. So you have two tenth indications throughout the tree. You have two tenth indications on your primary vertical and horizontal. Yeah. But your whole mill values are very distinct. Right. They stand out quick and easy. And the reason that we went with those whole mill uh, open circles yeah. is so that when you're at low magnification or at high magnification, your brain is always used to looking for the open circles for the whole mill values. Okay. Look okay. at most any other reticle that's out there that has dots for the tree, yeah. you're gonna have, still going to have hashes on your vertical and horizontal. Yeah. And then you have some sort of a dot down in the tree. Yeah. And my logic behind going with the circles throughout the entire thing was for the way that your brain kind of processes information, instead of going from whole mills being a, a certain size hash mark, and then you're looking down in the tree for a holdover, and now you're looking for a different type of a dot, mm. I wanted to keep things consistent throughout the entire reticle. Right. So and you're always, your brain is finding it easy because it's always looking for the same shape. Exactly. That's right. Okay. Yep. Uh, so uh, neurologists want to talk about like neural pathways in your yeah. brain. And, and yeah, you it's can, like a muscle memory. Right, exactly. And so that's really kind of your brain being able to process that information maybe a little bit faster, um, yeah. I think. So so there's that. Um, yeah, I don't know. It's uh, one of these things I just kind of 
tried to improve upon where I thought it could be improved upon and, and yeah. look at how a person uses things and your brain processes the information and build a reticle that's optimally designed. Yeah, so it you, becomes intuitive, and, I guess. That's you, the other. Yep. And so also with the dots, is it's it actually obscures less of your target image than a solid line type reticle does, even our impact too. So if you just look at the diagram of the reticle, um, initial launch, people's initial reaction was that it was too busy and it was too cluttered. Really? But once people came by and they looked at it at SHOT Show, either everybody either changed their mind or they were no longer as against it as they were. So, in fact, we, we got one guy, he was one of our early supporters, you know, from the get-go. He loved our impact, too. Yeah. And he stopped by, and he, he was hesitant about the new reticle. And he spent quite a bit of time with us at SHOT. Right. And I talked to him and explained to him, you know, point out uh, different things on the reticle. And, like, right there on the spot, he was almost converted. He, uh, really? Yeah, he picked up one of our first Impact 3 reticles. And now he's in the process of selling his other scopes and getting all impact threes. Yeah. <laughs> he loves them. So, so there's no way of factory swapping those reticles, is there? Once you've got it, that's it. You're done. It can't ever go back and be redone. So no, so we can. Yes. Okay. Uh, however, it is very, very labor intensive. Yeah. Uh, to do so because these the way that these scopes are built really is to be as sealed up and yeah you know put together you know permanently more or less um sure. but we can take them apart what it involves though is so much extra labor and man hours we got to pull a guy off of the normal assembly process to do yeah. a complete scope teardown yeah. and then it's the cleaning that takes a lot of time because where we use certain like uh, like a thread locker type adhesive for screws right. that we put in, we don't want yeah. to come loose. All right, yeah. So we use adhesive, you know, on some of these screws, a lot of these screws. So now all that stuff has to come off and cleaned, so yeah. the next time it gets put together, it doesn't already have residue in place. Right. Um, all the the bonding agent around the lenses has to all get completely removed. It, it's a real big chore, and so really what's happening is that's kind of driving up the cost yeah of the whole operation yeah right so what we prefer is if somebody really wants a radical change uh please call our customer service we'd like to talk to them and see if it really what's probably the better option is to sell your current optic yeah and just purchase one with the radical that that you want however um maybe somebody is specifically tied to that scope for some reason it might have been a gift from a, a best friend or a wife or somebody who knows and they yeah. want to keep the serial number for whatever reason and maybe to them it's more important to just go ahead and pay some extra money um, yeah sure and, and yeah. do a right change but but i i ask people to go ahead and call our customer service and and see if it's the right option for them fair enough yeah yes yeah, fair enough i'm sure you get all sorts of requests we certainly do yeah, yep. Um, it specifically since we started launching the the three, we've we've had a lot of requests, and I think pretty much everybody has just elected to go ahead and sell their their current optic. And one of the good things is that our our scopes are holding their value really really well. Yeah. Uh, 
across the board, even on the used market. Um, people are, you know, selling them, you know, used for, you know, only a hundred dollars or something less than yeah. they paid for. Yeah. Well, that's good for the, for you as a business as well. It maintains the, the pricing strength there. Um, yeah. It's not getting undermined, which is great. And is indicative yeah. of people's opinion of the product, you know, um, mm -hmm. they clearly think it is, it is, it is high quality and, and it clearly is. It, yeah, that, it, it definitely is. It, and even at the price point that we're asking, and so this was some of the hesitation from customers as a brand new company coming out asking the value right. that we were. Um, but as soon as reports started coming in from the end users about the quality and the durability, overall performance of the scopes, it yeah. really became a deal. Because yeah. our one of our next closest competitors for performance all the way around is another thousand dollars more expensive than we are. And who is that? Is that Hensel? Is that Schmidt and Bender or? Uh, that'd be the tangent theta that I'm talking about. Right. Okay. Yeah. So very, uh, very awesome scopes. Great performance. Um, I, I love their products myself. Um, yeah. And but we are, you know, competing directly with with them and yeah, um, as well as the Hensolts and. Yeah. And the Colossus and the Night Forces and everything else. But um, our price point is right where we need to be, where we're offering, uh, you know, all the performance of anybody else, whether yeah. it's optical or mechanical durability, but at a price point that's significantly less than others that are right there at the same tier. Yeah. Right. How, how, is, the, uh, how is the market in the UK and the EU? Are you seeing much pickup on the brand through Ruag? Yeah, no, we have um, actually quite a bit. And so right. because of that, um, so we mentioned that our scopes are primarily being built here in the United States. We do have a crew spun up uh, there at our facility in Austria uh -huh. that are working on um, on scope assembly and, and production as well. So we've had to increase our production capacity where we can. Yep. Um, so we're trying to do that uh, so that we can better fulfill the European side. Yeah, uh, makes sense. Yep. Yep. So we're, we're stepping up uh, everywhere that we can, but making sure that we're not cutting down on the quality of the product anywhere. Yeah, for sure. That is uh, always the challenge with expansion. Um, mm -hmm. and, and as you, as you experience <clears throat> increased demand for your product, you got to maintain that quality because that's what you're all about. Um, that's right. Do you yeah. find with the new reticle and uh, do you find, I think you covered this a little bit, but are you finding that people are, are needing that little bit of explanation to understand it and then they want it or are most people just getting it straight away and, and wanting it? No, a lot of people kind of need me to point some things out to them, some of the changes yeah. that we incorporated. So even, um, so we can go back to the, looking at the three versus our impact two. Yeah. And, and the impact it, two is the tree. Uh, correct. For yep. everyone. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. Um, so it has the, the solid lines for the tree. Yeah. Uh, and then little tick marks along the lines for your hold points. And it has 0.2 indications all along your entire vertical as well as your horizontal yeah. bars. Um, <clears throat> but if you look at the primary horizontal crosshair on the Impact 2, you notice that within that first mill, left and right, we have a single tick mark on the top part of the, the horizontal. Okay. 
and, and that's at your half mil hold point. Okay. And there we have 0.2 indications um, kind of cascading down that help kind of draw your eye towards the center. But you have two-tenth indications for a more precise hold within that first mil. And then going out from one mil to two mils, you have a 0.2 indications going out through there. So where your first two-tenth, your 1.2 mil, as a single tick mark down low, mm-hmm. and then your 0.4 and your 0.6 extend both above and below the horizontal. Mm-hmm. So you can quick and fast find your 0.4, your 0.6, or bracket in between for your half mil. Yeah. And then make the the 1.8 stand out a little bit more is that's just a single tick mark down below again. Yeah. But it's it's consistent all the, the rest of the way across the reticle left and right. Well, what what I was at, being asked from other competitors is they really liked having that single half mil tick mark. Right. And they want that all the way across the entire horizontal. So yeah. we incorporated that into the new Impact 3 reticle. Yeah, it's uh, I get what you're saying. It's a lot to yep. take in at first. That's the thing. Right, right. And so there, there's little changes that we did. Uh, so we have half mil tick marks all the way across the top part of your horizontal, but you still yeah. have your point two, four, six, and 8 on yeah. the bottom half of the reticle. But also the point four and the point six. Yeah. are still just a little bit longer than your point two and your point eight, so it makes those stand out a little bit easier. Yeah. And then in conjunction with your half mil tick mark, makes them really quick and fast, easy to find. Mm-hmm. There's a visual distinction that you can easily process. And then, um, so looking at the size of the tree portion on the Impact 3, yeah. if you look at all the dots, they kind of have uh, an odd stair step kind of a shape. It's not yeah. an even 45. Yeah. The reason that that is sized exactly how it is was to accommodate a 308 cartridge with the 175 grain Match King right. at 2,650 feet per second, standard atmospheric conditions and right. a 20 mile an hour crosswind. If that bullet at that velocity in those atmospheric conditions and wind will stay within that reticle, yeah. then pretty much every other modern long range type cartridge is gonna be well within that. So the right. tree isn't any larger than it really needed to be. Yep. So we're not taking up extra space. That's well in the, thought out. The so there's no part of it that's not used, in other words. There's, no, there's nothing wasted in there. Right, essentially. Yep. I didn't want it to be any bigger than it absolutely had to be. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. And then cool. the, the if you look up above in your, your top half of your yep. field of view, you got the, I, I started calling that the fatal funnel, okay? Yeah. Um, it, it's just a, a ranging bracket type system. Okay. okay. What I did like about other reticles that were out there um, was some sort of a method for ranging targets sure. at unknown distance. Yeah. And most of those have some sort of a stair-step type pattern. They have a, a solid base and then different length lines at different heights. So you could bracket the height of a target somewhere and then get an estimate range for right. that target. Right. Well, I couldn't figure out any other decent way to do that, and I didn't want to copy some other manufacturer, and I wanted something that was a little bit more applicable to a competition world that also translated 
to a military type thing because I knew that military customers were already looking at our stuff. Right. So I looked at how could I um, bracket something on the width of a target instead of the height of a target. Right. Yeah. Usually, even if you're looking at uh, a military application or law enforcement, and you're looking at somebody that might be behind cover, you're not going to be able to get the height of them from either their belt line to the top of their head or from the crotch yeah. to the top of their head. But you might be able to see their shoulder width yeah. or their head width or their head length or something or another along those yeah. aspects. Yeah. yeah. So I came up with this system, and, and it's not new to us by any means. In fact, uh, it's just a choke-type design. Uh, I know that um, this type of a thing has been used in tanks. Uh, yeah, yeah, sure. Right, yeah. Other. So, so similar type concept. I'm just trying to size it to a military and a competition realm. Yeah. So if you're looking at that right now, it can actually handle four different target widths okay. within that funnel to give you a direct range readout to where you're not doing some mental math yeah okay good for so, me that's yeah. uh that's handy yep so i started out designing that with uh full-size ipsic targets in mind okay. so a 100 percent ipsic is 18 inches wide sure. and a 66 percent ipsic is 12 inches wide mm -hmm. And so I wanted it to be able to handle those two because those also correlate to average human torso type dimensions, either your shoulders or your chest. Okay, yeah. Uh, but then I saw another benefit of adding the center line that's a dashed little line going down yes. through the middle. Yeah, it looks like a highway almost. Right. Yeah. Yep. So now what that does, it gives you half size targets. So either a six inch or a nine inch. Size you use the center line to the corresponding either right or left side. So of now the instead of having two measurements, you have four. We can right. bracket four different target sizes all yeah. within one system. And it gives you again, it gives you a direct range readout. So if you're looking at a 12 inch or a six inch size target, if it's a 12 inch, it spans the entire width of the funnel from the furthest left to the furthest right side. Yeah. Or if it's a six-inch target, it goes from the center line to the left funnel edge. Yeah. It's just opposite for either an 18, uses the both, the full left or the full right. Or if you're just looking at a nine-inch target, it goes from the center line to the right side. Right. Okay. And and those ranges are in yards. Okay. Um, from our research, uh, majority of the military, U.S. military, is still using yards for their ranges. Yep. So right. we wanted to, to do that. So it also, with that one system, it gives us a much more functional application with four different target sizes as opposed to the stair step type thing, which is limited to those specific sizes, or you're doing some sort of mental math. Yeah. For something that's either double that height or half that height. Yeah, trying to and you're using play. all your fingers and yeah. toes and yeah, getting it right. wrong. Right. So it's a lot more versatile. But the other benefit is that the bottom part of that funnel is positioned at three mils up from center and so okay yeah you still have the entire funnel in your field of view when you're all the way up at 27 magnification yeah but it's enough out of your way that your brain doesn't even process it when you're focused yeah. on your crosshairs right in fact right. we've had a lot of people out of open range, they just want to check out the reticle and they're looking at all the dots and the circles and seeing how much yeah. they covered. 
yeah. and then they were asked well what did you think of the the funnel thing in there and they said oh i didn't even notice it well, they had so. to go back and look at it again <laughs> yeah so it's completely out of your way if you don't want it you don't need it no big deal but yet it's there and available should you need it for something very nice it's funny how the brain can do that and just block it out completely literally like every little aspect on that reticle was was thought and there's a there's a reason behind it it yeah. wasn't just because we, we thought it might look cool or or yeah somebody some one person somewhere thought it was a good idea but so yeah. even if you compare the impact two to the impact three right at the center dot yeah the impact three we opened up the space around that dot just a little bit more then oh from yeah, the, I can see that. Two. Yep. I can see it. it's like clustered in a little bit tighter on the two. Yep, yep. Um, we had several requests to open up that space around that dot okay. just a little bit more. So we still did, but we also have your two-tenth uh, tick mark there yeah. so you know exactly where your two-tenth hold is quick and easy. There's yeah. no guessing about it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Very good. Yeah, that's uh, that's very cool. I can see actually it does take the explanation because now I want the impact three. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, <laughs> I probably, you know, for fear of looking like an idiot, I probably would have gone for the one or the two previously. Um, yeah. Very cool. Very yeah. nice. So you guys, uh, where can where can people find you first in the States and then um, in the UK and the EU? So easiest answer is um, if they're wanting to purchase a scope, just go to our website under yeah. the sales and support or whatever. There's a, a full list of our dealers worldwide. Oh, yeah, yeah I can see that. Yeah. Yep. So that's uh, that's the easiest. Uh, option if they're wanting to get a hold of us uh, one way or another they can always hit us up on uh, Facebook send a message yeah. um, we're on Instagram as well yeah. or um, you know call our customer service or send us an email you, you're, I think you're active on snipers hide as well is that right I am yeah I, I try and get on there uh, at least once a day usually a couple times a day just kind of checking in and seeing what people are talking about what are they asking for uh, a lot of customers will just send me a message directly on snipers hide and yeah. they, they know that zco is going to get it that way instead of uh hoping that you know it goes through an email system somewhere very cool um that's great that's that's uh i found that really entertaining and, and quite interesting because there's there's obviously so much that goes into a scope but when you dive into it that's when you really appreciate the finer details of oh that you know this has to be this way and that has to click a certain way and to do that you have to have a pin not a not a ball bearing mm -hmm. or you know it's things that you you know unless you cut it open and had a look you just wouldn't know right um, and, and uh, so uh, a lot of that came from mr huber and our um mechanical designer looking at every single aspect about how a scope was built and really being critical of how did we know that other people are putting them together and how can we do it better and coming up with ways to improve upon current systems or design that was out there and try yeah. to just make it, make it better where we could and we've definitely succeeded in that regard do you think that um 
changes in the customer base and by that i mean you know you've got prs right which is becoming more and more and more popular and is driving more and more innovation than it used to um a change is gonna affect the way that your scopes are produced or the or the type of scope that you make do you see any of those fluctuations coming or do you think that um basically you know the majority of users are going to want uh this the kind of all-around package that you've put together no so, so yeah the changes that are going on in the competition world definitely drive changes uh, throughout the rest of the industry uh so even military and hunting type applications really so you think prs is is in i use prs broadly i mean there are other right. competitions of course but yep. um that is is actually driving uh, military and hunting as well like that's the, the that's informing them oh yeah definitely without a doubt in my mind anyway right. Um, right. so even from my own perspective i started shooting competitions more as a way to get more proficient with my rifle for when yeah. i went hunting right yeah because you've got that one shot and you've got to make it right um yeah and so competitions put me in different positions um that i'm not comfortable with typically and so it makes me practice a lot more different things so anymore when i go hunting it's a lot more relaxed for me when i need to make the shot i'm used to being on my gun i'm used to pressing the trigger i'm used to finding a range to a target and determining what my hold needs to be yeah. and it's, it just makes things a lot less stressful for when i do need to take that shot especially if it's a little bit uncomfortable type position. I've probably been in something very similar before. Yeah. But even from the technical side point, um, I use my competition gun for my hunting rifle as well, but not everybody does that. Yep. However, they still appreciate being able to adjust their turrets, especially if they're into the long range hunting side of things. Yes. Uh, they want good magnification ratios to where maybe they're in a position where they need to have a big field of view and a low magnification in case something hops out fairly close yeah but then the capability to increase magnification if they find you know later on in the day that they have a, a longer range shot that they need to take yeah it occurred to me that field of view is so important in competition when you're trying to acquire the target in a time limit mm -hmm. um, but it definitely has that flow on benefit which you've just said in hunting um, right you still yep. want to be able to quickly find your target um, and not be faffing yep. around, you know, and then it's and it's moved. Yep. But even um, as more and more people are shooting some of these uh, 22 competitions, um, so the like the NRL 22 competitions, yep. there's even guys using uh, doing a 22 ELR type of a match to where they're running their 22 long rifles out, you know, wow. up to 600 yards or something or another. Really? Wow. Wow. Yeah. That's cool. Yeah. And so. <laughs> One of their one of their requirements is they want to have a parallax that does adjust down to that 25 yards or meters or so somewhere yeah. around there. Even yeah. closer is, is better, um, but they need a parallax system that goes down to that. And so again, take a look at our scopes, and we do we actually mark it to 25, but it'll usually go a little bit closer than that, closer to the 20 right. meter side of things. So very, was... very close focus capability also. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's so cool that you've built that in and it also blows my mind that someone is running around out there with a 22 with a zero compromise scope on it um <laughs> it's like a three and it, it, three and, and a half and scope. Bottom, 
Yeah, there, there's a lot of them, um, a lot yeah. of guys out uh, doing that. And so that is just amazing, I think. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It makes a lot of sense. Train on a 22 and get familiar. It's very, you know, it's cheap. The same skills apply. Um, mm-hmm. Yep. We had uh, yeah. Nick Bazone. You probably know Nick. Um, yes, another name. And, yep, and he recommended the same thing, you know, practice with your 22. This exactly the same fundamentals exactly the same wind calls the same you know um equipment and technology applies um in fact uh, you you tend to you tend to need to focus a little bit more on your fundamentals with a 22 than you do your primary gun just because the dwell time in the barrel and it's a little bit longer you need to be a little bit more uh precise with your positions and follow through and technique well, if we're ever allowed outside again in the UK, um, I'd like to uh, <laughs> I'd like to break one out and start practicing. You've been listening to the Tier One podcast, brought to you by Tier One, makers of the world's finest rifle accessories. Find out more at tier-one-usa.com, and tune in for more great insights on the next episode.